WAER Sports proudly presents the Ostrom Avenue Podcast. And Syracuse has knocked off NC State 24-9. The students rush the field. The Orange are bowl eligible in 6-0 for just the third time in the last 87 years. Syracuse stops out the Spiders. It took overtime to do so, but the Orange claim the first semifinal of the Empire Classic 74 to 71. Breaking down the orange every week. Syracuse's defense dropped by 20 spots on Ken Palm last night. So that was really embarrassing. I think Malik Brown should be getting more minutes. He shows the energy. I think he brought energy when he came to the floor. And talking with the industry's experts. We're joined by a very special guest and a friend of the podcast, Brent Axe. We now have the pleasure of being joined by David Thompson from the USA Today Network. We're joined by a very special guest. It's former SU men's lacrosse star and current ESPN analyst, Paul Carcaterra. It's the Ostrom Avenue podcast from WAER. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ostrom Avenue Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 15th, recording this late morning. My name is Ethan Frank, and as always, I am joined by Jordan Leonard. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing great. It's been a great morning. I, I woke up, you know, the, now that daylight savings times happened, I woke up because of the sun, not my alarm. So I'm actually feeling a lot better this morning. As did I. I uh, woke up about a half hour before my alarm because the sun just si- shines bright into my windows. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the show. As always, we're brought to you by you, the listener, and our friends at Empire Hearing and Audiology. We very much appreciate their support for the show. A lot going on in the world of Syracuse athletics. Let's start with football, Jordan. Dino Babers gets off the schneid. 28-13, the Orange defeat Pittsburgh at Yankee Stadium. I was there. Uh, it was a very interesting game to watch. Syracuse's offense uh, through eight passes. Um, and ran the ball for almost 400 yards, including Dan Villari, the ACC running back of the week as a tight end. It was uh, it was very interesting to watch. Um, but, you know, Syracuse deserves credit for adjusting and getting a win. I do think they deserve credit for adjusting and getting a win in conference play. I don't think they deserve too much credit because of the fact that they didn't have a passing quarterback really that could throw the ball. So they had to do that if they didn't want to go to Luke McPhail. Yes, they executed at a high level. They had over 390 rushing yards, which is a feat. However, you got to remember they also did it against Pittsburgh, who now, after Syracuse winning, is the worst team in the ACC for a reason. They don't have a really good team overall. Syracuse's defense played well again, which I'm not shocked. Um, They've been playing well enough to win certain games all year. Um, It's just the offense has been atrocious. And finally, the offense at least was able to move the ball. I'll give them credit on that. Being only able to run, they did move the ball decently well. I'm just not in the in the mode of giving too much credit to Jason Beck and company because they had to do that. They were forced to make changes. I would have rather had them had a healthy quarterback and make changes to an offense that wasn't working than being forced because they didn't have healthy enough guys to really work the, the real offense that they try to do. Well, the counterpoint to that is that it took five weeks. It, it took, you know, he had to make the adjustments eventually. Uh, we didn't but, see but adjustments. were they adjustments, though? They were adjustments based on personnel because they didn't have quarterbacks that were healthy. It's not adjustments based on what he he truly believes in his offensive scheme, which is his job as an offensive coordinator. So I wanted to see him make adjustments based on that, not have to make adjustments because they couldn't pass the ball because they don't have any healthy quarterbacks. That's fair, but I do believe he deserves some credit for taking his medicine and not forcing Luke McPhail into the game to throw the ball like he wants to. That's fair. That's fair. And they did a good job. I mean, Dan Villar, they control, I mean, right, using... controlling, controlling the clock. You think about the Boston College game, BC had the ball for what, 42 minutes in that game. And Syracuse was able to control the clock in this game. Uh, it dictate, dictated the pace. I talked to someone on the team yesterday who said, you know, we controlled the time of possession and that led us to to have a lot of success in the game. The defense didn't have to play as much, which was a theme over the past five weeks, was that Syracuse's defense was getting run down because the opponents had the ball for so long that they could only, you know, bend and not break for so many possessions before the dam finally burst. And the offense controlling the pace and the tempo of the game was really important. Yeah, and that's that's really what the difference was when watching the game. I mean, Syracuse 
I mean, if you look at it, the way to win games, if you're not going to light up the scoreboard, is to possess the ball, is to make the other defense tired to where at some point they are going to break. That's what other teams have done to Syracuse, as you just mentioned, the last five weeks. Syracuse finally did it to someone else. They The offense finally stood up and said, okay, defense, we're going to carry you to this victory by keeping you off the field, letting you guys stay healthy, and we're just going to run the ball, grind out possessions, and eventually Pittsburgh's defense will crumble, and that's why they got to 28 points at the end of the day. Yeah, and Pittsburgh is bad. Let's just put it out that they, way. They are we, we talked to Noah Hiles last week, a friend of the program. Um, and and he said, you know, he thought, you know, they could get some energy from being at Yankee Stadium. First time they've been at Yankee Stadium and it was kind of there, but not really. I mean, being there, the atmosphere was pretty bad. There were not <laughs> a lot of people. There were not a lot of people at this game. Um, it was it was it was a cool venue to watch a football game in because you're, you're set up right behind home plate and the field goes out from home plate into the outfield. So you watch it. Uh, kind of like you're playing Madden. You see it from that angle, not the usual side angle when you're watching on TV or you're at a game and you're sitting on on one of the sidelines. So it was interesting to see a game that way, but the atmosphere was was just not there. Yeah, I I, saw, I think I saw a video on X, and I don't. I think I could count how many people there were in that video. It was it was probably it was around ten. I, I yeah, I was talking to someone yesterday. I was like, it was ten or fifteen thousand. They're like, whoa, that's not and it, it very was a spread. It was a spread out ten or fifteen thousand. They yeah. weren't sitting in one section or or two sections. It was. It didn't look like a sparse crowd, and I think something that you know Noah Hiles said on on the podcast and how the energy would be there playing at a cool venue. I think. Playing at the same venue as that Syracuse did in the bowl game last year helped, and especially Dino Babers and I talked about it in the coaches' report on on WAR before the game, that they have experience with Yankee Stadium. When they go there, most of their players have been there. There's not going to be an awe factor, so it's just down to business. Not saying that that affected Pitt, but at least, you know, going to that game, there's no awe factor. There's no... There's not as much nerves as that as you're playing in Yankee Stadium. Maybe if you're a Yankee fan for the first time, that team was really experienced and they could get down to business. And I think that helped at the end of the day. Yeah, it did. Um, five and five, two chances. Just have to win one to get it to smells, a bowl game. It smells like 2021 right now. <laughs> uh, we will. I, I I I could not be more interested to see how this team comes out at Georgia Tech on Saturday. I saw early lines Georgia Tech was favored by like six and a half, seven points. Well, the question um, which, is really about the quarterback health uh, right. availability. Sir, I mean, because you know Jack Gordon and I talked here, about it after the game on the double overtime. You can't run this type of offense again. Well, and you, Georgia Tech is a, a way better team than Pittsburgh is for sure. You, you mentioned that, and the question is like, if a quarter, if Carlos Del Rio Wilson is available this week. Do you run the do, do you balance the offense? Do you kind of do some of what you did against Pitt with the running game? Do you put Carlos in full time? Like it's really the question of if people are healthy enough, which offense do you run and how do you balance that? Yeah, it'll be really fascinating to watch. Uh Saturday, 8 p.m. kickoff, uh prime time for the Orange on the road in December. Uh, or November. We'll see how they do with that. Shifting to basketball, interesting game in the uh, JMA Wireless Dome last night. Colgate up by 16 at the half on Syracuse, up 54 to 30 at one point in the second half. And SU mounts a ferocious comeback, ends up winning 79-75, the second biggest comeback in the history of the ECC. 25 was the biggest. Uh, that was tweeted out by Pete Moore, uh, Syracuse's uh, informa- men's basketball information uh, director. What? Like what, what, what happened? I don't honestly, like we were, we were in both in studio yesterday. We were like Syracuse done Syracuse done at halftime down 16. What is happening? It's one thing like the last couple of years, Syracuse at least been in the game for most of it against Colgate there. Colgate had their stretches and they ended up winning by 15 and what 12 the last two years. They were like getting the doors blown off of them in the first half and the first four minutes of the second half. And then it's funny as each four minutes passed in the second half after the the 16 under timeouts, like, oh, Syracuse might be back. Syracuse might be back. Syracuse is back. Syracuse is back. And it's like the question of whether they were going to get over the hump. And really, I mean, what happened was Chris Bell and Judah Mintz decided to carry this team to a victory, essentially. Judah Mintz, 23 points. That's great. He had 11 free throws. I'm pretty sure six of those came in the second half, but he had eight assists too. So it's not like he was, he was, scoring I was surprised. I was surprised passing. when I saw that number. I was like, where did all these assists come from? Cause I, all on I Chris remember Bell is, threes. Uh, just on Chris him, Bell threes. Yeah, just him driving to the basket. And 
I, I saw a really good tweet from Chris Carlson last night uh, of Syracuse.com where he was like, it felt like he's like, it felt like Judah like short circuited in the first half where like his, his calibration is go to the basket, get fouled or score. And every time he was just going in and either throwing up a wild shot or turning the ball over. And then the second half, like the circuit reconnected and he was like, Oh, I can finish at the rim where I can draw these fouls. Um, or I can uh, make the kick out pass. Justin Taylor had a couple threes. Um, and you know, credit to Malik uh, defensively, Malik Brown and Quadir Copeland. I mean, just absolutely terrific in the press. Uh, forcing turnovers, uh, causing steals. It was a, a really impressive display of energy and effort on defense. But, you know, we're going to talk about it with Mike Waters in a little bit. This needs to happen, you know, for 40 minutes. This can't just happen for 16 minutes throughout the second half. You have to come out with this type of urgency. Uh, I've been critical of Chris Bell. I'll give him his flowers for this. Uh, very impressive uh, performance, playing with a lot of confidence, not just standing on the three-point line. He got to the basket multiple times last night and finished in the lane from close range against bigger defenders. I would say, you know, after a couple of games, I was most down on Chris Bell, the player I'm most down on right now. Uh, I'll, I'll leave Benny out of this. has to be Naheem McLeod. Uh, he was terrible on defense. Um, on offense, he can't really do much. He just, like... He'll come up to set a high ball screen and Colgate's, you know, on ball defense. We talked about this with Mike was really good in that they were just, you know, putting those two guys on whoever the ball handler was, whether it was Copeland, Mintz, Starling, um, because it takes McLeod so long with his big frame to get to the basket on a pick and roll that by the time the guard is ready to come off of that double team, Colgate's defense has already recovered. So they need to figure out a way to use Naheem McLeod uh, in games that can get him, you know, advantageous touches. But I was really disappointed. And then on defense, he's just slow. And there's not really much you can change about that. Yeah, on the offensive side, I think they need to really experiment of what they can do in terms of fake screens, slip screens, whatever it is with Naheem McLeod to just get him close to the basket with the ball in an advantageous position. I mean, you look at his stat line, 19 minutes, two points, and the problem is only three rebounds. You, you need more than three rebounds in 19 minutes, and he had, what, six, like six or what, seven or whatever in 19 minutes the other day, but it needs to be consistent. I mean, he's bigger than almost everyone on the court every game that he's on the court. So you need to get those rebounds at least at the end of the day. And really Chris Bell, like he showed us that he can play at a high, high level, six, three pointers. Can he do it on a consistent basis? Because that's really been the question for his entire Syracuse tenure, which is not too long, but I mean, last year he shows it in spurts, but he can't mount it up consistently. And that's what, honestly, that's what Syracuse men's basketball has been struggling with. They played good defense, great defense, for stretches they played great stretches they haven't been able to even put it to a great 20 minutes I mean you look at the first four minutes of the second half they couldn't they weren't they didn't come out of the locker room very well so they need to find a way to make these stretches longer into a half and then eventually into a full game because I mean against Colgate yes Colgate is a very solid team they've won they've made the four NCAA tournaments in a row but against better ACC teams, when you get down, like the Pittsburgh game last year, they got down, what, 25? They almost came back, but when you're down that much, it's one thing to come back. It's another thing to be able to win the game. It's not a sustainable way of playing basketball uh, because you exert so much energy. I, I said this, you know, I was talking to someone about this last night. Uh, one of my favorite lines is uh, from a, a someone that I heard is, you can't fake desperation. And Syracuse yeah. in the second half was desperate. Uh, they were the more desperate team on offense, on defense, uh, when it came to even, you know, when you think about basketball special teams, diving for loose balls, uh, things of that nature. Um, and yeah, Syracuse was more desperate and it deserved to win the game because of how it played in the second half. Um, let's, uh, uh, any, any final thoughts on the game, Jordan, before we, before we toss things over to Mike? Yeah, you mentioned the press. The press looked really good. They need to bring the press back out more times than just being down in a game. I, you know, Malik Brown and Quadir Copeland had five combined steals in the press. And if you're going to put Malik Brown on the floor and there's not going to be a big on the floor, I think you need to use your athleticism in that. I mean, when Syracuse is on the floor with like a Malik Brown, Quadir, JJ, Judah, like, and Justin, that that's a long, that's a long athletic group that can play the zone one, but also can play press. They can get back. They can really cover everyone on the floor. So they need to be more aggressive and really exert energy on the defensive end because they can score the ball. We know that Judah can score. JJ can score. 
Justin and Chris can score in bunches. It's about getting stops on the defensive end. That's going to really control how many wins Syracuse can get. Syracuse is on to Hawaii. We will see who it, uh, who has brought their A game, who has brought their B game, and and maybe worse to uh, the Maui Invitational in Honolulu. And to recap uh, the Colgate game and preview what is to come for the Orange this season, we chatted with Syracuse.com's Mike Waters, recurring guest on the program. Great to have him back on. Here's Mike. Hope you enjoy. We are now joined by one of the all-time guests on the Ostrom Avenue podcast. He's been on many times before. It's Mike Waters of Syracuse.com. Mike, how are you doing on this Wednesday morning? I'm a little blurry-eyed, Ethan, to be honest. Um, You know, uh, an incredible game at the Dome last night that uh, had us up late, looking up a lot of records and a lot of history. So, But other than that, I'm fine. How are you? Doing good. Uh, yeah, it was it was an exciting game to to watch, to cover, to listen to. Um, let let's talk about it. Uh, you know there were some, you know, two losses in a row to Colgate for Syracuse, and then it looked like it looked pretty likely it was going to be a third down twenty four at at one point in the second half. Uh, what what were your overall takeaways from the game? Uh, well, as any sports writer, beat writer understands uh, my best lead was scrapped. Uh, with <laughs> we had all written our stories with, at around halftime or at the four minute mark of the second half. Right. Um, I, that's just a dramatic shift. You know, Colgate was dominating that game. They had whatever they wanted on offense. They, they were executing terrifically shooting the ball. Well, from three, controlling the ball, not turning it over, increasing their lead to 24 points early in the second half. Um, And then just to see the game change. And, you know, for me, it came out of nowhere. I mean, yes, they were going to put on the full court press, but, you know, Colgate's a veteran team uh, with a great uh, little point guard. Actually, not that little. Braden Smith is is excellent. He's a returning starter. He's only a sophomore, but he's a returning starter. Their front court's all seniors and grad students. Uh, these are all guys that have been to multiple NCAA tournaments. They're experienced and they're good. And to see Syracuse succeed in that press was was really eye-opening. And I don't think a lot of people across the country will, will see that score and, and appreciate it for what Syracuse was able to do, they'll see Colgate and they'll kind of go, oh, well, how did Syracuse ever get down by 24? That's the real story, right? And they won't really, you know, they'll they'll just kind of go ho-hum to a comeback against Colgate. But this is a Colgate program with six Patriot League titles. They've gone in multiple NCAA tournaments. Keegan records alone has been to more NCAA tournaments than the entire Syracuse roster combined. So, you know, to see Syracuse just, you know, uh, really – baffle bamboozle frustrate fluster colgate to that end was was really amazing so and it also for a a team like syracuse a lot younger uh new head coach you know the uh, four minutes into that second half is when a lot of teams quit it's when a lot of seeds of doubt start to grow and and it didn't uh adrian autry was able to keep those uh players focused not on the big picture because that would have been too much 24-point lead's insurmountable, right? But he had them block it down. Four-minute games. Four-minute games. And if you tracked every four minutes from that 16 mark on, Syracuse kept cutting into that lead. Um, so it was it was a pretty amazing night at the Dome. In the first couple of games, it's been kind of a consistent theme. Syracuse being gritty. Uh, the, the first two games really weren't um, – as you know, as blowouts as maybe some Syracuse fans expected, and Adrian Autry said at the end of the week, as he was proud of how gritty his team was to kind of grind those games out. This one, another example. What have you seen from the team that's on the younger side? I think it's the youngest team in the ACC, just kind of surviving and not letting that like bad non-conference loss kind of hit their schedule early in the year. Well, they're they're, they're learning on the fly here. You know, Adrian Autry wants them to play more man-to-man defense, and I think. They haven't shown yet that they can play man-to-man defense for full for the full 40 minutes. And Adrian Autry mentioned that last night. The first two games against New Hampshire and Canisius, they basically won those game, games by playing about six or eight minutes of really good defense. And the rest of the game was kind of like a really disappointing effort. 
uh, guys didn't weren't playing with the intensity that you have to have in order to win at the college level. They were playing like high schoolers, to be honest, in man to man. They were they were a little lackadaisical. They were playing cool. Um, Colgate last night they played about sixteen minutes there of really good uh, defense. And again, it wasn't all half court. It was because they were out in the full court, but they never let up. The intensity, they maintained it throughout, which Adrian Autry mentioned in, in the postgame last night. That was great, right? And you needed that kind of effort. And I and it gives him a chance to impress upon the players, this is what we're talking about. Here is the difference. You see the way you played in the first half and what was the result. And then look how you played in the second half and what happened. And this is what we've been trying to tell you. Sometimes players need to experience it before they really understand it. And now they just have to start to learn to play it for more than 20 minutes. You know, try to get it to a 40-minute level, the way Virginia plays the Tony Bennett defense. Virginia doesn't play defense for 16 minutes a game. They play it for 40. And that's how Virginia's gotten really good under Tony Bennett over the last 10, 12, 13 years. When I look at the defense and the man-to-man defense and watching the difference between Colgate and Syracuse, you could see how, especially in the first half, Whenever Syracuse tried to get, you know, Naheem McLeod up with a with a high ball screen, they were always hedging really hard on on the guard with the ball, whether that was Judah or whether it was JJ, because they weren't scared of the threat of McLeod rolling to the basket because, you know, he's a bigger guy. So it takes him a little longer to get to the basket than someone like a Malik Brown, who's a little more agile when it comes to the man defense. To me, it kind of feels like they're trying to break a, a bad habit with the zone, like it's like they're bite, like biting your nails or something where it's like zone is biting your nails. And then when they're playing, man, it's like, Oh, we're, we're not biting our nails. Uh, but then you kind of have to go back to it because you're not biting your nails and you eventually fall back into, into that bad habit. Why do you think, especially in that first half, Colgate was able to do such a good job against the man defense when they were able to do a really good job against zone the past couple of years. Why did playing man not make much of a difference at all defensively. Well, I don't think it was so much in terms of breaking a bad habit. I don't mind that analogy too much, but I'll differ with it a little bit. When Syracuse was in zone, it could look bad if they didn't play it hard, if they didn't play with intensity. The good Syracuse zone teams, and you guys haven't been around for them because Syracuse hasn't been a good defensive team, period, for the last few years, right? You haven't seen the zone played the way the 2013 team played it or the way the 1996 final four team played the zone and other teams played the zone. You can play zone and play it well if you play hard. And, and also if you have the right pieces, if you have the right personnel and so that hasn't been the case for Syracuse in a while. So this team, they're playing a different defense, but they're still learning how to play it hard. And yes, in a zone every once in a while, maybe you could get away with being a little flat footed, you know, the ball might be on the other side of the court. You weren't going to get beat back door because your man could go and there's going to be a center in the paint or a forward picking him up. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying there, too. Yeah, you could develop a few bad habits if you were allowed to in the zone. You shouldn't. You should be a good defender, but you could develop a bad habit or two. So they're just learning again how to play. Now, how did Colgate do so well in the first half? That's a good Colgate team. You know, that that that's a Colgate team that you know led the country in three point shooting a year ago, and they lost a couple guys, but they still got Braden Smith and Ryan Moffitt and some some new guys who can shoot it. You know, you mentioned how Colgate defended the high ball screen. They hedge hard, but they don't switch all the time. They try to get through the screen, and against Syracuse, you don't always have to fight over the screen. The center can, your center can back away from a Naheem McLeod and give the guard a chance to go under the screen because you're not worried about Juna Mintz or J.J. Starling shooting a three. If they do, you're like, okay, let's see if he makes it. And both Juna and J.J. have been struggling from out there so far this year. Colgate doesn't have to go over the screen to stay with a shooter. Syracuse does. You know, so and Syracuse guards, whether it's Judah, JJ, or whoever else is out there on the perimeter, Kyle Cuff, Quadier Copeland, they do need to learn to fight through screens. And most of the time, they're going to have to fight over the screen because whether it's Colgate or almost anybody in the ACC, that's a guy who can shoot. 
So if you go under a screen, you're giving a guy a free look from three-point range. And yet, if you don't fight over it hard enough and that hedge isn't good, that guy's going to come off that screen and 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 slice right to the basket. So it gets tough. Uh, you know, it basically, yeah, Colgate has an easier time defending the Syracuse ball screens because the Syracuse guards aren't haven't proven themselves yet to be shooters that you have to worry about. And that's something that they're going to need to do, uh, especially when you're starting to face dip more difficult opponents as the season goes on. You mentioned that 2013 team. I think when you when you say that, I think about those the Sweet 16 game against Indiana and the Elite Eight game against Marquette that year is the when that may be the the best zone that I've personally gotten you know to watch you know watching from home or or whether that not at the vantage point that probably you did watching it up close, but as a as a fan at that time. Uh, being able to see what a zone at its at its peak can can probably do. You mentioned Judah and JJ as individual guys. Any big surprises performance wise? I know you know Chris Bell had the big night last night, but looking at you know two preseason games, three regular season games now, what is the biggest surprise you know from an individual player perspective that you've seen so far? Yeah, I don't know if anybody has completely shocked us. Uh, we expected Judah to play well and and. Uh, being aggressive, I don't want to say ball dominant, but obviously the ball is going to be in his hands a lot, uh, but aggressive guy, guy who's going to want to get to the basket. And he's been doing that. Uh, you know, JJ hasn't shot it really well yet, but he's still contributing. And, you know, again, I guess Justin Taylor's first few games were good uh, shooting it. Well, you know, bailing out Syracuse in a few games when no one else was making a three, but now it's good to see Chris Bell start to get that going. You were hoping that Justin and Chris might be guys to help spread the floor for Judah and JJ. Even if, you know, Judah and JJ, other teams are going to be like, yeah, we're going to back off of you a little bit because one, you're not great three-point shooters, but you're also so dangerous getting into the lane, getting to the rim. They got to back off of you a little bit. But even if someone backs off a step or two, Judah can still go. And he proved that last night. He gets to the line 14 times. Judah, I mentioned this to Brandax last night on the pod. Judah drew 10 fouls. He's so aggressive going to the rim and he plays through contact. He drew 10 fouls. Colgate as a team drew 11. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing for a 6-3 guard. Usually guys that, that will lead a league or a conference or whatever in drawn fouls are big guys. You know, maybe a six eight forward or a six guy slashes or even a center. Like Armando Baycott should lead the ACC in fouls drawn. But I don't know. Right now, it might be Judah Mintz, which is incredible. We were talking about how young this team is. Pretty much the entire starting lineup and really the guys that play are sophomores, with, with the exception of Naheem McLeod. Uh, looking at the roster, we don't want to make any too like early preseason, you know, predictions whether they're correct or not. We've only they've only played three games, but because how young this team is, how long do you think it's going to take for us to be able to see what their floor and what their ceiling could be for the entire season? I'm not making any pronouncements on this team uh, until at least New Year's. For one, the the upcoming schedule is brutal. And they could lose some games. It could be a bumpy ride here. They got Tennessee in the first round of the Maui Invitational in Honolulu. Uh, the second round game is going to be against either Purdue or Gonzaga. Uh, you're going to come home after that. We don't, we don't know who they'll get in the third round. Uh, but then you come home, you get LSU. You got to go on the road to Virginia. You're going to play Oregon on a neutral floor. You're going to go at Georgetown. Buckle up and don't panic. Just if you're a Syracuse fan, don't don't panic. If there's, this is a team that's learning, every everything's new, and they're going to learn from these games, but it could be a bumpy ride, and I'm not going to worry about anything really until New Year's because I, I still think that if this team, these players collectively can keep their heads about them, and if even if they do go through a rough patch here coming up, um, but if they can just kind of maintain their, their poise, I look at the ACC and I'm like, they can beat some of these teams. They could do well. Now, there's a whole bunch of ACC teams out there that are probably looking at Syracuse going, we can beat those guys this year. So I, mean, I looked at KenPom.com, uh, his website, 
And he had Syracuse playing, it was like around 14 or 15 games this year where his computer data suggests that it's going to be decided by five points or less. 15 games by five points or less. And he had them losing a lot of those. So he didn't really have them coming out with a great record, but those are a lot of close games. And if this team gets better, and I really do think they have the potential to grow, you know, they 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 they, they could do well through January, February. It'd be really interesting to see what this team, how they're playing in January, February. That intrigues me. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I I can't I I wait I can't wait to see what this team becomes. I remember you said on uh, on Syracuse Sports with Brent uh, before the season that you weren't going to panic until at least after the Maui Invitational. So now you're you're doubling down on it even further until New Year's. But I guess the follow up to that is if you know Colgate, let's say Col- Colgate's up by twenty four at one point in the second half. If Colgate goes on to win that game by twenty points last night, I'm not saying the fans. I'm guessing will probably have have lost their mind. Would you still have been you know no panic at all even after that kind of a margin? A eh, little panic, little panic. Okay, you know, and not so much panic. It's it's what's just one of those losses where if you're gonna try to reach goals and and also maintain, you know, the potential for being a postseason team, you can't lose that game. Now, if you do lose it, based on the previous two years and and looking at the rosters this year and everything, I wouldn't have been shocked. You know, that was predicted to be a close game. Uh, and to see Kelgate come in and, and and shoot the way they did in the first half and everything, you're like, well, you know, it wouldn't have shocked anybody. Shouldn't have shocked anybody. The the margin at halftime was a shock, but an outcome of a loss wouldn't have been a shock. But it's still one of those home games that's the kind that has really kneecapped Syracuse over the last couple of years. You don't get in the tournament when you lose to Colgate. You don't get in the tournament when you lose home games to Bryant or you know other teams like that. That's the games that that end up hitting that hurting you. Uh, so you know, let's see where they go. You know, yes, they're playing some big boys here soon. But listen, you go out to Hawaii and lose to Tennessee and Gonzaga. That doesn't necessarily end your postseason hopes. Those are quote unquote good losses. And we'll just have to, it'll be interesting to see how they do against teams of that caliber. Do you think being, being an underdog in those games is a good thing in that sense for this team that, you know, playing like kind of, you know, we're like, if you lose this game, Oh, it's a good loss. So it doesn't really hurt you because you're not expected to beat a team like this. Do you think that kind of frees them up a little bit more? I don't know if these players really, see themselves necessarily as underdogs. I mean, we all sort of get it, right? But they no, that I don't think they I don't think they buy that. I, you know, and in a way, certain programs can't ever be underdogs. You know, Colgate can beat Syracuse two years in a row and still come in this in the dome and, and and cast themselves as underdogs if they want. Yeah, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do it again. Whatever motivates you, I guess. And may, maybe Colgate might have said, no, what, two years in a row, we're going in the dome and, you know, we're confidently coming in and we, we expect to beat these guys. I really think that was probably Colgate's attitude, but you see it in the NCAA tournament sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes I think fans see the un- scrappy underdog, but if they really got inside that locker room, they'd see like a bunch of players that had a lot of co- confidence and felt like they were going to win, not an underdog attitude. So that's more for movies. Uh, this Syracuse team, I mean, you know, you tell Judah Mintz and JJ Starling, who were top 50 recruits, they're underdogs. No, no. Um, but given the nat- national perception of where Syracuse is and everything right now, no one's going to bat an eye if they lose to Tennessee. So in a way, it's not like you're hurting your profile or something like that. You're not hurting your ranking. Uh, so, but if you do take down a nationally ranked team out there, People are going to take a second look and go, well, what should we think about Syracuse? Maybe we should adjust our thinking. I think it's going to be interesting to see um, Syracuse playing a little bit down to their competition in the first couple of games. Not that Colgate is down, but they're solid to see if they rise to the occasion and play um, up to their competition with a Tennessee, Purdue or Gonzaga. Um, but going to the Maui Invitational, Syracuse has been there a couple of times before. I'm pretty sure they were there with Adrian Autry and I'm pretty sure they won with Coach Autry back in the day. 
Um, do you have any like good, great stories from covering any of the Maui Invitationals, and um, why have the teams that went over there have been successful? Why have that? Why has that been? I've covered three Maui Invitationals, including the one that you mentioned, where Adrian Autry was there. Um, the thing that I remember about that one was um, Indiana was also out there, and it was the debut of Damon Bailey who was a ballyhooed recruit out of the state of Indiana. He was an Indiana high school legend and everybody was Damon Bailey mania. Uh, so we got to see the, you know, the Damon Bailey out there. And that was a, that was a Syracuse team that relied on guys like Billy Owens and Dave Johnson and Adrian Autry was, you know, in the starting lineup. Uh, I believe that was his freshman year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then you had uh, another team that went out there, I think it was the Jason Hart Aton Thomas years. So again, these are good teams, man. These are good teams with good players. There's no mystery how you win, right? Uh, you don't win three in a row because you're, uh, you know, lucky in a game or made one last second shot. And then you had the team that um, was it the 2013-14 season with CJ Fair, the team that got off to a 25 and 0 start. Again, you know, CJ Fair, Jeremy Grant, Tyler Ennis. Um, you know, three guys, I mean, Jeremy Grant's making millions in the NBA now. Tyler Ennis was a first-round pick. C.J. Fair had, you know, more than a, a little cup of coffee there in the NBA. You had guys. <laughs> you, you you had guys back then. Uh, it's a tough tournament. I, it's a great atmosphere. I, I don't know how the atmosphere will be this year since you have to take it over to Honolulu instead of Maui because of the wildfires. But Maui, they always put on a great event. It's a great uh, experience over there. And I think it's good for players to learn to play one day after another. It mimics your conference tournament format when, when the ACC tournament goes and you'll play one game after another. You get used to the rhythm of that. And even though it's not exactly the same as the, as the NCAA, actually it's tougher. Because you Maui, you're going to play three games in three days. And the NCAA, like that first weekend, you're going to play two games in three days. But you do get used to playing, you know, back-to-back -back or – you know, game off day game. Uh, so, and, and also it gives you a good read on where you are and what you're going to have to do, because, you know, they're, they're really going to be able to measure themselves against some of the top teams in the country. I looked it up again on KenPom.com. Five of Ken Palm's top 10 teams are in the Maui field. Five. And there's only eight playing. And one of the eights, the host school Chaminade. So, you know, Syracuse is sitting there looking at this going, it's like that old saying about when you sit down at a poker table, if you can't find out who the mark is, if you don't see him, it's probably you. <laughs> it's like, you know, Syracuse is looking around at this field going, hmm, oh crap, it's us. <laughs> my my lasting memory of the 2013 tournament was uh was the CJ Fair dunk that led to the uh the bloody, the bloody cheek. Um, that was that was one of my favorite memories. Uh, not the only you know time CJ Fair has uh, has driven down the lane and and given Syracuse fans a, a lot to cheer about. When it comes to to covering these tournaments, as as someone who's been there, you mentioned you know playing three games in three days, and and how that's different from kind of what they this team has experienced. I think back to last year and obviously it's a lot different. They're playing in, you know, Brooklyn and not in Hawaii. But it felt like, you know, talking to I was there and talking to Judah Mintz and, and Benny Williams after the game. They those games, uh, Judah played terrific uh, if I remember against Richmond and then against St. John's. Um, and Syracuse ended up losing to St. John's. Both those games went to overtime that those guys kind of reveled in the fact that, oh, we're, we're playing for Syracuse and we're playing, you know, even though it's in, you know, we're playing in New York and that's kind of a big deal for Syracuse. Um, it's not the same playing in Hawaii, but it seems like now that those guys have that experience from last year, even though it's not the same thing, it still is important that they went through that last year playing a couple games in a row. I'm sure. I'm sure it does. But you got to remember, though. Kansas, Gonzaga, Purdue, they, they've been through it too. And they, they've got some experience. Team Tennessee is loaded with experience. Their backcourt uh, was with Descovy. And it will, will, the Ziegler kid play has been playing. He hasn't been starting yet, but that's a veteran backcourt. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think that all equals out. And, you know, some of these teams have NCAA tournament experience that Syracuse doesn't have. So, you know, it, that's going to play out. But the players do like these environments. You can tell. You know, they see other teams walking through a hotel lobby. 
uh, you know, in, in Maui, in the, in, I don't know how it'll be in over in Honolulu, but in the Maui gym, you actually have to, if you're playing in the game, you know, then, you know, like, like the two o'clock game and the noon game is going on. When you come in, you actually have to walk through the gym. It's like a high school gym. So you, to get to your locker room, you walk in and you see teams walking in while another game's going on and they, they're, you know, they're watching. And then teams will actually come out and, and there's like an area in the Maui thing where there's like an upper area and teams will be sitting up there watching you know, like the game where they're going to get like, you know, the winner or loser then the next day. And you don't see that in a lot of places, but it's really a cool part of it. Uh, so yeah, the, the teams and the players, they, they get a lot out of this. And I, you know, we've got Donna Detota headed out there to cover the game for us. Uh, I'll be manning the fort back here in, at home. It was her turn to take the exotic trip, but as you guys probably have figured out over the years, it's like these these big trips aren't as much fun for the people who have to work when we go. Like sports writers and and the players are the only ones that they go they go to Maui and we come back with no tan because you're in a gym all the time. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Um, so we talked about the the ACC schedule being manageable this year. You look at a bunch of those games and they're winnable games. So looking at the non-conference, Maui included, you got Georgetown, you got LSU, you got Oregon at a neutral site. It, looking towards a possible NCAA tournament berth because Syracuse hasn't made it the last two seasons. How many, how likely and how many wins do you think Syracuse in the non-con and maybe against who do they have to kind of squeak past to set them up for being on the bubble or having a chance towards the end of the year to make the dance? I think a couple of the key games are the home game against LSU when they come back from Hawaii and then that road trip to Georgetown, a true road game. And right now, those two games look like toss-up games. They really are. They're they're 50-50 or 45-55 type games. Those are close ones. Syracuse needs to win both those. First of all, you don't you don't want to lose at home. You know, losing in Hawaii is one thing. Losing to Oregon on a neutral court would be another thing. But if you can win at home, you got to win at home. You don't want to drop that. And also, you want to win that true road game. And of course, beating a rival is always a special thing too. But if they can take those two games. And let's say they lose two in Hawaii to nationally ranked teams. And let's say maybe they lose to Oregon on that neutral floor. But you can navigate the rest of this schedule. And then I, if I'm doing the numbers in my head, that would be an eight and three record in the non-conference. With losses, none at home, all on neutral courts, at least two of them to nationally ranked teams. Oregon might be nationally ranked at some point this year. You don't have to make any apologies for that. Um. And then you got to do your business in the ACC. Now, one thing that's going to throw everybody off in this whole thing that we just did is you got that road game to Virginia. And people are going to be looking at that, too, going, oh, wait, well, it's, it's not a conference. Oh, it's conference. It's like, and the problem is it's right in the middle of all this. So that's where this ride that I described as bumpy gets bumpier because they got to go down to Virginia for a road game on on Saturday, December 2nd. That's really, that's really going to be asking a lot of teams. That's a lot of games away from home. As Adrian Autry mentioned at preseason media day, he did not make this schedule. No first year coach would, right? <laughs> no one, no one would would put that kind of difficulty on on their first season as head coach. And it seems as though the uh, the committee puts a heavy value on on non conference wins is is a theme we've seen over the past few years. And if Syracuse can steal one um, in in any sort of way against. Right, like you're mentioning, an LSU or Georgetown, or even if they could put up a fight against Oregon, that would go a long way. Yep. Mike, that's can't... a neutral court out there, and that'll be a weird environment. That's one of those will you, will small you... little places. I, I don't know how many fans Oregon expects to bring. I don't know. I don't know how many Syracuse alum, alums live in Sioux Falls. Um, that that'll be weird. That, that to me, that's going to be playing in like the Badlands version of the Bahamas. <laughs> I, you said uh, you said your colleague Donna Dakota gets to go to Hawaii. Does that mean you get to go to South Dakota? You get the other end of the exotic trip. Woo! Um, <laughs> nothing beats a December trip to South Dakota. We have you ever been to South like Dakota? That. We live in Syracuse, for God's sakes, right? We can't cast aspersions, uh, but it's you know. I, listen, I'm actually kind of excited about it. I've have you ever been, been to South Dakota? Dakota? You've never been. Nope, never been. I wish Mount Rushmore was a little closer. Yes, I was Falls. looking at I was looking at that too. I think all of us in Syracuse taking that trip uh, took out a map and said, "Wait, what? 
five hours. <laughs> so I don't know if any of us make it. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I'm excited. You know, I love you know it'll. I love good basketball games. I think an Oregon game on a neutral floor will be a really interesting game uh, for Syracuse. I'm sure Adrian Autry wishes he had a home game against somebody really bad instead. So, but uh, no, you get another non-conference neutral court game against a tough power five opponent. So I, I remember when that game was announced last year, I was like, this is not, this is a joke. Like they're, they're not playing Oregon in, in South Dakota, um, but it should be really exciting. I can't thank you enough for your time. Where, uh, where can people find you, find your work, read your stuff. Um, uh, Syracuse.com is the website. Uh, I'm at Mike Waters, S Y R on Twitter. Uh, the podcast inside Syracuse basketball is available on YouTube and Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. So I'm out there, folks. Come find me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike. Looking forward to to reading and, and listening to all your stuff throughout the rest of the season. And uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, guys. Hey, listen, this was great. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much again to Mike for his time and thank you to Empire Hearing and Audiology for their continued support of the Ostrom Avenue podcast. Great partners, great friends of ours. We appreciate their support for the Ostrom Avenue podcast. A lot of interesting things there from what Mike said, Jordan. What stood out to me the most is his his sense of calmness for this group and really being patient and kind of letting, you know, see what's going to play out. Um, it doesn't seem like anyone has super realistic expectations for Maui. What, what what are you thinking? For Maui specifically, I think you need at least one win. Assuming, you know, say you lose the first two games, you play Shamanad, that's a must win. I think though, like it's hard to predict because I haven't watched too much Tennessee, Purdue, or Gonzaga. Obviously, they're in the top 15 for a reason. But the way that Syracuse has been playing, they've played well in stretches. It'll be interesting to see if they come out and play well in Maui because they've played a little bit down to their competition the first three games. Can they play up to their competition when they play better teams? Are they they that team where, you know, when they play a little bit worse teams, they may play down to them, but when they play good teams, they'll play up to the competition. That's what I'm looking for. Um, I thought the most interesting thing for Mike was his now delaying what he's like till he's panicking until New Year's because I actually – I actually agree with that in terms of this team is like so much younger than people think they're the youngest team in the ACC. Almost all their players that are playing significant minutes are sophomores. Um, So giving them time to develop with a first year coach, obviously not the easiest non-conference schedule to do that, but because of the ACC, I think being a much more winnable schedule this year, like there's a clear path to at least 10 conference wins, maybe even more. So given that I do agree with Mike, like there's really no reason to panic until you get towards like the Pittsburgh game on, I think, what is it? New Year's Eve day. Yeah, it's something around there. I, I agree with that as well. Uh, that's not, I mean, Mike, I, I wouldn't classify myself as patient. Uh, that's not, that's yeah. not one of one of my, my personal personality <laughs> traits, but, um, but I, I agree with him in that sense that it's kind of hard to evaluate at this point and that this is, it is, you forget how young this group is really. Um, and, and that has to be taken with a grain of salt in every game. And even though we've watched them play mostly for one year last year, at least, and you're not playing freshmen, uh, these are all guys that are still trying to come together and build chemistry. Yeah. And, and it's going to be tested at the end of the day, the, over the next couple of weeks, if they can get a couple wins, like Mike said, against an LSU or against the Georgetown, I think Georgetown's a must win personally, just because, I mean, Georgetown's I a solid team, but they what they lose the Holy Cross, Holy like they, Cross at home, yeah. They're 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 most likely going to lose the Rutgers tonight, hopefully. But um, it, that you need to get a win at Georgetown. I think that's a solid win. LSU's at home, so like, obviously, like Mike said, you don't want to lose the home game. But if they show that they're in the game, not like a Colgate where they come back at the end. If they show that they can sit with these teams that are going to be on the NCAA tournament bubble, if not comfortably in, that's going to really show that you can have confidence game in, game out in conference play, that you can compete with the level of the ACC and really go for it once you get to that conference schedule. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, kind of have to. I was when we were talking about the end. Kind of have to win one of these bigger non-conference games if you want to have a realistic shot at making the NCAA tournament. When it comes to football, big game on Saturday against Georgia Tech. We were talking about Ostrom picks. We both went zero and three last week. Um, Syracuse finally won. They yeah, proved Syracuse us wrong. Syracuse finally won. Uh, 
does that mean I'm going to pick Syracuse this weekend? No, probably not. I'm probably <laughs> going to pick Georgia Tech. Um, but where, where do you stand on on the Orange and and your likelihood to pick them this weekend, Jordan? Um, I I find it hard for me to pick them to win. Uh, depending on what the line is at the when it comes to like Thursday, I might end up picking them to cover partially because I'm down two and a half picks too. And there's only two weeks left. Um, but I could see Syracuse covering and keeping it close, but Georgia tech, I mean, you look at them, they're a solid team. They're at five wins too. And their last game is against Georgia. So this is a must win for Georgia tech if they want to get to a bowl game. So I think there's going to be a little bit more desperation from them. So I think they get the win. I don't know if they cover. And then that's where, you know, trying to fade your picks now comes at the end at comes into play. Yeah, uh, I will definitely be picking Georgia Tech to win and cover. No no way around it. Uh, they have to win <laughs> this game, and I think they will. Um, and I think they will pretty handily because I don't think Garrett Schrader's shoulder is just going to get better over over. over well, so uh, the here's the question. The here's the question. If, if Carlos Del Rio Wilson is healthy enough to play, do you start him? Or no. do you go back to the offense against Pittsburgh? No. After what we saw against Boston College and ha- he couldn't play in a dome, you expect him to be able to throw the ball on the road? No way. Okay. I've seen I, enough. I can see that. I have seen enough from Carlos Del Rio Wilson that <laughs> I don't need to see anymore. <laughs> that that's super fair. That's super fair. Oh, uh, all right. That will do it for this edition of the Ostrom Avenue podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcast, wherever you're listening now. Apple, Spotify, wherever. Uh, you can check out W8ER.org for all our podcast and written content on there at W8ER Sports, at W8ER Sports Talk. That's where you can find your more daily content when it comes to what the W8ER Sports staffs are putting out there. And you can find us on YouTube as well, at Ostrom Avenue Pod. That is where our video interviews live. If you want to see myself, Jordan, and Mike talking Syracuse basketball, our podcast schedule. Looking at next week, we're probably going to have an early week episode. I'll be on site in Hawaii, um, probably an early week episode talking, maybe a little football recap, but mostly basketball stuff. And then we will have a very exciting announcement at the end of next week uh, that you will not want to miss. It will be a very fun episode towards the end, maybe a, you know a Black Friday episode after you're all full from your Thanksgiving meals. Saturday football, 8 p.m. kickoff, 7.30 countdown to kickoff that means the double overtime goes until 1 a.m and then basketball monday tuesday wednesday i'll be on the double overtime hosting after each and every game uh i hope you can tune into w8 years coverage of what will be a very busy thanksgiving week all right that will do it for this episode of the ostrom avenue podcast thank you very much for listening again and we'll talk to you next week